professional. Did I think I that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. That's too many Sometimes letters. Sometimes I say planner and I get it wrong. And I'm with <laughs> financial advisor Ryan Repko. Don't worry, one of these days, Ryan, you'll be a CFP as well because mm. you passed the exam. You're just putting in your time. Patience you can, uh, yes, your patience is the key. Call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. Looks to me like there's a lot more texting going on these days than using the email. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Fred, all the data I read um, continues to, actually it's better than I might have even anticipated as far as the sales numbers that are coming from the 500 largest companies. Um, it's The sales number has grown uh, 9% over the past year, the best growth in six years. Earnings rose 23% over the last year based on a quarter to quarter basis. Um, that's the best growth in seven years that's that's pretty incredible earnings increase 23 percent and i uh, read an article by the uh, the fat pitch um, and i forget the fellow's name but he rewrites really well he's a really smart guy and he wrote that the outlook for 2018 uh two also appears to be strong he went on fred to say baseline economic growth is about four to five percent the dollars depreciating which could add another three percentage points to growth the new tax reform law passed in late 2017 is expected to add another seven percentage points. And so the consensus expects earnings to grow 18% this year. I think that's a pretty incredible story. Right. It would be probably uh, priced in too, right? Uh, surprising given that it's been growing pretty, uh, pretty steadily over a, a long period of time. So again, I think the uh, uh, good news actually is overwhelming the, uh, the prospect of higher interest rates. So right. Two weeks ago, we were in, in that uh, short uh, correction, probably one of the shortest corrections around. So and, far. Uh, yeah. And the uh, concern was about uh, higher interest rates, and that there's still that concern, but the uh, prospects for growth, I think, are so strong that it's overcome that. We're in kind of a, a period when uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, controversy, a lot of uncertainty, because uh, you have a lot of uh, professionals, especially economists, saying that uh, the future holds low returns, uh, because of a bunch of uh, different uh, fundamental kind of factors, yet we've had really high returns over the past uh, nine or ten years, right. much higher than anyone expected. So right. I think the uh, the ordinary investor may uh, come to believe that the last five or t- eight years is going to be the future, and it, it probably will not. But also, uh, there's probably not going to be any uh, predictable kind of downturn either. So we're kind of in this never world where we don't know exactly which way we're going, which is really the way the world works. And you have to look at these long-term kind of trends, not the, not the short-term situation. I agree. And the long-term is that uh, equity usually is better than uh, fixed income if you're able to hold for a long period of time. And we're going to talk about that because, oh, wise one, Fred, you're like Warren Buffett. And in his most recent letter, <laughs> he made a pretty strong case for that, that, you know, and I think it really is a faith, patience, and discipline issue. And, and, the, and the faith is in the American enterprise system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the greatness, as he said, since 1776. Yeah. And one of the things that is really beginning to, I've gone from not really overly concerned about government deficits in the you know mm-hmm. past because I felt like some of them, you know, the emergency spending and and it did get out of hand both sides. And by the way, I'm an equal opportunity blamer, so mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not favoring one side or the other. They they both look, you know, as far as spending, they they just don't seem to care that much. 
Um, now we're looking at huge deficits. Right. We have a, a national debt that suddenly 20 and three quarters billion dollars. Last time I looked, it seemed like I blinked. It was just approaching 20 trillion dollars. Right. I might have said billion. I meant trillion. Yeah. And it's also uh, unlike uh, 2008 and 2009, uh, the deficit is not because of uh, bad economy. Well, there, are two, there are two ways that deficits occur. One is if there's an economic downturn, rev tax revenues go down and uh, various kinds of expenditure programs, uh, transfer programs go up, which creates a, a kind of automatic deficit. But what we have now is a, a kind of planned deficit when, when uh, that's not what we need. So we have these two things happening. The first was the uh, tax cut, which will certainly have short-term implications for deficits and maybe in the long term. And the argument, well, we'll have uh, discipline on the spending side, but then a few weeks later, we, ha out we, the have window. A, we have a uh, spending bill that also increases it. So we have both a tax cut and an uh, increased deficit spending bill. So it, it is a, a long-term kind of problem. So we've been in this long nine-year boom. I wouldn't call it a boom. Expansionary period. Nine years into it, and we're going into huge deficits. Right. I, I just I can't believe what I'm seeing and hearing mm -hmm. from these politicians. And, you know, a bigger government crowds out the private the right. private enterprise system, and also it's the uh, also the short term versus long term. Again, of course, no one expects uh, the deficit to have a devastating effect in the next year or two years, or maybe even five years. But if it continues for a long period of time, there's going to be some uh, issues to face. But politicians' concern now probably is uh, November of, <laughs> of this year. There's no not. question about it. But you know, you, for a while it looked like you at least had some politicians right. that were just dead set against this type of spending. And they've caved in, <clears throat> and I just find it incredible. And to me, and I think I don't think you necessarily agree with me on this one. If I'm a the CFO of a major company, and I see the spending that's going on, I look at these tax breaks as nothing but temporary, because with these types of deficits going on, we know that we're going to have to. There's going to be immense pressure on raising income taxes, corporate income taxes, along with it. Yeah. And so I think. I think it greatly undoes what with the potential any potential increases from the from the tax increase. I think are temporary right. at yeah, best, and, 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 I, and I think shorter term than I would have thought uh, a month or two ago. Well, even more so uh, because of the politics of the uh, of the tax reform. In the past, uh, most every major tax reform has not been unanimous, but it's been a compromise kind of bill with Republicans and Democrats. But this time, it was very much like uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, where uh, in Obamacare, every uh, Democrat voted for it and almost every Republican against it. And then after that, it was uh, the Republicans, when we take power, we're going to undo that. Right. Well, now it's going to the same thing with the tax bill. It was uh, almost all Republicans voting for it, Democrats voting against. And they're going to say, well, if and when uh, we take power again, the Democrats are going to reverse a lot of these. And obviously, there's a lot of uh, of uh, question about who's going to control Congress in the next uh, two and four years. Of course. It just it's it's. You know, I'm becoming disturbed for the first time in a long time, and I think I'm real concerned about it. Uh, it doesn't really have any impact necessarily on my yeah, investment no strategy. Yeah, uh, we still have to deal with. I think the one. Th I think the one thing, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this. I, I, I personally think the Federal Reserve's behind the curve on this and in inflation. I wrote about this. I think it was roughly a year ago. I said, okay, just so everybody knows, the future concern is going to be inflation. This was yeah. even before it was thought about, and I think we're there. And to me, it strikes me that this Federal Reserve is behind the curve on this inflation uh, factor. Uh, and now the inflation theme, I'm not talking about hyperinflation. Right. Um, 
I think you talk about the 20 year olds and 30 year olds, all they've known is disinflation at very low right. levels. Um, I, I would just wonder yeah. what the shock's going to be, even if we get it the, you know, three and a half, four, four and a half, five percent inflation. If that, right. uh, well, I, yeah, there, there is this kind of uh, odd period when everything seems to be going right in terms of uh, low unemployment and uh, low inflation, but that may not last forever. Again, it's not. There, there were all these warnings back in two thousand nine that we're, we're going to have huge inflation because of the. Uh, uh, rescue of the financial sector. That never happened. I never so this, bought into that This one. is going to be more like the uh, the old normal where we'd have creeping uh, increases in inflation if something's not done. And we're I, we're there, really printing money now yeah. in, in the truest sense. I you know, always felt like when we went into the emergency uh, bailout, uh, the Federal Reserve for the first time paying quarter percent interest on, on reserves, they had never done that. And so a lot of that liquidity and printing of money ended up in the reserves, in yeah. the Federal Reserve system and not out there to, you know, to push have an impact on right. prices. Yeah, it's always uh, you know easier in uh, in hindsight. But one of the uh, arguments about the uh, the advent of the financial crisis in two thousand seven to two thousand nine was that the Fed was overly uh, lax in terms of uh, increasing interest rates after nine uh, eleven. They wanted to be very careful and make sure the economy didn't uh, didn't uh, slow. So they waited too long. That's only a very small part sure. of the picture. Yep. But maybe a similar thing now. But again, uh, I don't think you're predicting any kind of uh, short-term crisis. Oh, no, no, and, I'm, and, I'm not at all. I'm really thinking and, quite yeah. long-term. I, more like you, I think you've you've been real clear. You're not all, all that excited about the next two or three or four years. You're thinking if this type of spending continues right. 15, 20, 25 years from now, I mean, it's unsustainable, and then it's, there's going to be a day and, of reckoning because anything that can't go on forever won't. Yeah, and there's a, another layer on top of this in that uh, the demographics are such that they're going to be increases in uh, uh, spending for uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security because of larger number of people retiring. So yeah, because we haven't even talked about the yeah. other entitlement yeah. in the debt that's, you know, that's there yeah. because of and that. And there's no, uh, it's, a, it's a huge number. Regardless of what people uh, think about uh, Trump, uh, there's no particular will any place to uh, no. make major cuts in entitlements. None. None. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying where they should be cut, but I just, I think what we're doing is unsustainable. You know, there's been a lot of uh, banter over this really the past eight or nine years that, well, all these increases in the stock market, all these new highs are just because of, are not because of better profits, but they're, they're buybacks or it's the Federal Reserve. But um, it looks like 90% of the growth in earnings in the S&P 500 over the past eight years has come from better profits and not you know, share right. buybacks and some of the excuses. Yeah, I think low interest rates have obviously played a, a role there, but it's not, not the only thing. But it's been, it's been primarily driven yeah. by earnings. That's, that, that's what the data really well, We're kind of looking back today, but I, I was thinking the other day, uh, you know, two or three years ago, every time we'd, we'd talk about uh, what's happening in Greece, what's happening in Italy, back in, uh, uh, I was on the, we didn't have, the, I was on the show at the time, but back in, uh, 1990, we we're talking about the savings and loan crisis, right. and those kind of things just kind of they don't they never end. No one officially says the savings and loan crisis is over, or the uh, <coughs> problem of Southern Europe now is over. But they kind of recede, and and no one ever talks. It just about forget, the, it's the forgotten Greek. about. Yeah, right. It's just amazing. I think that's the one thing that is abundantly clear to me after 35 years. Um, nobody can. It, it won't be too many years from now that anybody will be able to tell you what happened in 2007 and 2008. It's really like things like even 9-11. I mean, we're not sitting around on a daily basis talking about 9-11 like we were in the first, you know, as, as humans in the first 30 days or 30 months. That's to be sure. Well, we, I mentioned uh, Warren Buffett. He puts out an annual sh uh, shareholder letter, and it's I always enjoy it. 
Um, I, I really look at his, I really am not interested in their financial information. I'm, I'm more interested in the quips and the wisdom of Warren Buffett. And there was a, certainly, uh, it certainly, this one holds a lot of timeless investment wisdom, uh, from his, what I would say is sage wisdom. It's no shortage of it. I think one of the things, um, when I meet with prospective clients and Ryan and, and Dave, you, you know, that. I'm really picky on certain phrases or words that I just basically have banished. Words like risk, uh, things like that. I won't use the word risk. I always use fluctuation. Uh, I won't use the the term, you know, I lost money when a client says, oh, you know, I was with, uh, you know, I invested years ago and I just remember I lost my, uh, I don't use that. I always talk about that being a temporary decline because a diversified portfolio, it takes human interaction. So I'm, I'm real picky. So I always, look for Warren Buffett's letter for things that become, I just steal those quotes from him is what I do. Uh, but I, this one is kind of goes along with my theory because you've heard me, people that listen to the show and you guys have heard me say, it, and of course, David and, and Ryan, you've heard me say it more often than not. I never really say the stock market with clients. I'm always, I, and I'm not trying to be cute. I always refer to them as the great companies of America and the world. And, and Warren Buffett really kind of points this out in his own way. He said, stock investments are not just ticker symbols, ticker symbols. Charlie and I, Charlie is Charlie Munger, his partner, who's in his 90s, I believe, <laughs> view the marketable common stocks of Berk Berkshire Hones as interests, interests in business, not as ticker symbols to be bought and sold based on chart patterns or the target prices of analysts and the op me, uh, opinions of media pundits. Instead, we believe that if the businesses of the investees are successful, as we believe most will be, our investments will be successful as well. Sometimes the payoff to us will be modest. Occasionally the cash register will ring, ring loudly. Um, uh, he said that sometimes I'll make expensive mistakes, uh, but I guess that's just welcome to the investment world. Overall and over time, we should get decent results. In America, equity investors have the wind at their back. And I think when we talk about this as advisors or people in the financial media, it's too easy to say the stock market. And, and I'm convinced, Fred, um, people of even my generation, your generation, uh, people with adult memories, uh, I think a, a preponderance of them, when they hear the word stock market, they instantaneously also think of the word casino. That is a stack deck. You can't make it. The house wins when really it's not that at all. And I think that's what Warren Buffett is saying, that look, these are businesses. And businesses... Uh, uh, prospects will ebb and flow, and therefore their prices will too. I mean, it's right. just, why is it that people can't, well, why, what do you suppose it is about this? And guys, feel free to put your opinion in that this view of the stock market is a, I'm, I'm, I'm like a cork bobbing, bobbing in the ocean, seemingly going in any direction that it takes me, and it's stacked against me. Yeah, it's probably uh, goes back to behavioral or, or psychological kind of issues that you remember either good things or bad, bad things uh, very vividly. So uh, I'm sure people remember uh, right now at least 2008 and uh, at least people know in the, in the uh, history books, they remember the Great Depression. So they, they always have this potential in the back of their mind of a, a catastrophic kind of loss, which is there, but they forget the, the uh, upside as well. Yep. And the upside usually, I mean, there, there are meld-ups and things like that, but typically uh, you don't have a stock market uh, explosion where it increases by 20% in one day. Right. So, so, so I think the, the downturns maybe are more dramatic than the 
the upturns. So yeah, my dad was born in the Depression. Sorry, Dave. And he, he was born in 1916, before the Depression. So he lived through it as a teenager. And he always had that, of course, actually living through it right. and having to take care of his family, essentially. Um, he, he, he could never understand why people could invest in stocks. Right. Well, the other thing, too, I think that uh, uh, this is uh, receding gradually, but uh, uh, in the old days, uh, like when I was growing up, uh, you, you had to be an expert to get in the stock market. Sure. And you had to sit around your, your den and study uh, charts and things like that and choose the right one. So what we're talking about now is not uh, beating the market. It's uh, capturing the returns on the market. So if your goal is to beat the market, uh, you should be pretty uh, pretty worried about that. If your right. goal is to capture the, the good part of the market at a uh, in a low-cost way, that's the, the way we're talking about going. Sometimes right. I wonder if it, it's almost easier to lose sight of the fact that you're owning companies nowadays because, you know, most people that are investing are investing in really diversified mutual funds or right. ETFs. And I think sometimes, you know, you look at that and you see the S&P 500 index fund and it kind of is like a market index. Sure. And I think it's easy to forget that really that's, you know, ownership in the 500 biggest companies in the U.S. And you start just thinking of it as, oh, I own the stock market, and you start seeing those fluctuations, and you forget what's underlying those things. And I think if you do lose sight of that, and the reason Warren Buffett probably brought it up is, I think it, it you're going to be more prone to try to jump in and out of the market at the right time, because if you forget that you're just owning a business, that you're going to get a share of their profits over time, you're going to feel like you have to jump in and out and time things right, right. as opposed to just sitting and collecting your profits. Right. And, and you don't have to. Uh, I, I, uh, you said... Uh, Several weeks ago, Paul, that you don't necessarily have to pour through the uh, Wall Street Journal and read stories about every every company. Right. So, you know, if a, if a company's having trouble, uh, I, it makes front page I, I know news. that, right. but uh, makes no difference to me, particularly in terms of uh, my investment strategy. Because again, you're you're uh, so diversified that no one particular uh, company or, or or activity makes a whole lot of difference, and you don't have to. Uh, be on top of things all the time to to be successful and all you're seeing is really the daily price fluctuation of yeah. that mutual fund in the event in, you know to the extent that it's a stock index mm -hmm. mutual fund he went on to talk about his winning bet against the hedge funds um, which ended at the end of last year he wrote there was nothing at and he beat it by a, a, a you drive a mac truck through the how big the difference was there was nothing aberrational about the stock market warren buffett said uh over the uh, stock market behavior over the 10-year stretch Making money in that environment should have been easy. Indeed, Wall Street's helpers earned staggering sums. While this group prospered, however, many of their investors experienced a lost decade. And I thought this is one of his quips. Performance comes, performance goes, fees never falter. Mm. In other words, saying, look, the market will fluctuate. Right. Um, expenses matter. There's at least a negative one-for-one one you know, correlation right. uh, between your expenses and if what happened with these hedge funds is if you look at they're just their gross returns they weren't too bad they were still behind a simple standard and poor's 500 index fund but 60 percent of the money ended up going to the hedge fund managers even though they produced really disappointing net returns uh, to their investors um, i'm going to spend a little more time on this um, seizing the opportunities then this is about his bet so this is relationship to he earned somewhere around eight or eight and a half percent per year, and he thinks that's pretty normal expectation of what you might expect over a ten-year period, which is not the same thing. This is my editorial saying that he's saying you're guaranteed to get eight and a half percent. It's just that would be a reasonable expectation. Seizing the opportunities then offered 
does not require great intelligence, a great degree in economics, or familiarity with Wall Street jargon such as alpha and beta. What investors then need instead is an ability to both disregard mob fears or enthusiasms and to focus on a few simple fundamental, uh, few simple, a few simple fundamentals. One of his quips, a willingness to look unimaginative for a sustained period or even look foolish is also essential. Guys, that, that is the essence of, even when you're planning for re people's retirements, you build these portfolios, we do it using index mutual funds. So we're not trying to outperform anything. We're just, and, and our belief is a portfolio is a slave to the plan. So you plan first, but even though, and we follow a, a global approach. So it's going to, by its very nature, differ from just the returns of the standard and ports 500 index or the Dow Jones industrial average. And I've been through so many periods that Warren Buffett mentioned that it just seems like, well, you guys aren't really doing anything. And sometimes that's the beauty. Uh, benign neglect is, is generally a preferred uh, means of investing, but we'll go, we'll, we can go three, four, five, six years where our global equity portfolio will underperform the standard and poor 500 index. And over a three year period or so, that's just as likely to happen as not happen. And so I certainly been through that, particularly in the mid to late nineties, Fred, when of course, the bigger the company you own and the more growth oriented, in fact, the fewest earnings that, you know, the least, less earnings it had, the better you did. In fact, Warren Buffett's strategy was going the other way when the stock market was going up. So, and we follow a value strategy as well. And that didn't look so good in the mid to right. late nineties. There's a lot of pressure on me to make changes, which I didn't do. And I'm glad I didn't do it. Um, go ahead, Ryan. And I think a, a big point of what Warren Buffett's saying too is, financial investing doesn't have to be complex. It can be relatively simple. And I think we see that time and time again when we meet with new clients or potential new clients who have been conditioned to this uh, financial investing is, is very elite. You have to have a very deep and, and broad understanding. And we come in and we explain our approach to investing and they look at us almost dumbfounded, wouldn't you say, to think, how simple things really can be. And we get it, we make it more simple all the time. Um, you know, we've gone to a, a structure that uses even fewer mutual funds than we used to use because they're there. Now there's core funds which say, look, those three or four mutual funds of U.S. large and U.S. small and value and, and mark, we can put that all in one core fund and reduce trading even further and reduce costs even further. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I think I think simplicity almost bothers people. It's almost like, well, that can't be good. That's too simple. And I think the whole point, and I think it's a good one, Ryan, is, you know, uh, there's a certain sophistication in simplicity. I think they said, that might have been Socrates that said simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And I think when it comes to our investments, I think that's a, a really sensible approach is the more you can simplify. Even, I'll even say to the extent, and this isn't a recommend, recommendation that people go out and do this today. I'm just saying if, if I know as an investor I need to have a certain portion of my money allocated to the great companies of America and the world, I can default to the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index and have a spectacular outcome. Likely, if history is any guide, and again, past performance is no indication of future results, uh, but you're probably going to do quite well if history is any guide. And David, one of the, th the things that he mentioned is the amount of sheer cash they have on hand, some $116 billion in cash in U.S. Treasuries, average maturity of 88 days. 
and, and compare that to a year ago, he had $86 billion. So obviously, Berkshire Hathaway's storing cash and not able at the moment to find the opportunities he would like. Uh, he went on to say, this extraordinary liquidity earns only a pittance and is far beyond the level Charlie and I wish Berkshire to have. Our smiles will broaden when we have redeployed Berkshire's excess funds into more productive assets. This kind of highlights, Dave, the problem uh, specific to the star mutual fund managers that for a period of time have a very hot hand. There's no reason to think they'll continue to, though people do extrapolate and think they do. Uh, once they get their fifth star from Morningstar, they get billions of dollars that rush in, and they, they kind of face the same uh, challenge, don't they? You know, now all of a sudden they, they've got all these billions to deploy, and it makes it very difficult for them to keep up their superior performance. I, I, What's you your read? take on that? Uh, I just think it's kind of interesting. I was going to say um, people only have so many good ideas. That's kind of the way I explain it. But, right. uh, investors like I think you know say there is an active manager and he has skill and maybe he can identify you know 10 companies that he knows are great investments well say they're like relatively small or medium-sized companies and you have a hundred billion dollars to invest like Warren Buffett does well you you can't put all your money you'd buy all of those companies and still have you know however many billions left over and that happens on a smaller scale to mutual fund managers essentially it's you know the more money you have the more you kind of, the more money you have to invest, you're kind of limited. You now m- might not be able to buy the smallest of the small companies because that won't even make a dent in your overall assets. And then you're limited to, you know, bigger companies, or you have to have more companies. So now you're investing instead of just in your absolute best ideas, you're investing in maybe your best and some that you think are oh, oh they're they're good, maybe not my best. So it's just kind of an interesting dilemma. Yeah, I, I was going to say the. Uh, Wall Street Journal today said that uh, Fidelity is uh, moving away from the star system. They're, they're, oh, okay. Uh, it, and uh, again, I guess the stars aren't, aren't uh, aligned. Well, right there's now. no predictive. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think people assume that if it's a fifth star, it's really looking backwards. But, but uh, my uh, uh, experience, which uh, led me towards uh, passive investment, was back uh, maybe three decades ago or so. Uh, Fidelity said, uh, we're going to let you in the Magellan Fund without a load. I thought, oh, that's great because uh, Peter Lynch right. and Magellan's the world's greatest fund. So I went that way a little bit and it underperformed the market. Yeah, uh, then, then it turned around, didn't it? Uh, yeah. it just, that just highlights the challenge of even if these people have skill, so much money finds them. Or the skill may have been luck too. Well, it could have been, but I mean, I'm giving them. You know, I'm giving the the, the notion that there are managers that may possess skill. Uh, I doubt it, but I'm I'm open to it. But the problem is, if they have these superior performing manage managers, money finds them to a the degree. There's no reason to think the investor is going to get the excess rents. It's going to go to the superior manager. Well, and kind of an interesting story that. I had heard, well, the person I worked next to when I was at Dimensional, he won some competition when he was at UT and getting his master's of finance, and he got to have lunch with Warren Buffett. And he said Warren's comment some point at some point during the lunch was, you know, if I didn't have so much money to invest, I'd be killing it right now. I don't think those were the words. That was kind but of Russell's interpretation. It. But yeah. yeah, because, you know, when you think about early on in his career, he didn't have as much money to invest. And if you look at uh, the lifetime of Berkshire Hathaway, yeah, it's outperformed an index, but that's because in the first like 10 or 20 years, it absolutely annihilated just the U.S. total market. And it's because he had 
you know, less money to invest in, he could buy specific companies and kind of run them. Right. And he had a few that just were phenomenal investments and had amazing returns. Now he doesn't even have the opportunity to do that. He has That's to buy tough. like national insurance companies. Right. And sometimes the whole company. Yeah. I'm Paul Rudy. I'm here with uh, Dr. Fred Gertz, David Rudy, certified financial planner, professional and retirement income certified professional and financial advisor, Ryan Repco. You can call in with your questions, 356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna spend just a couple more minutes on that because this is a point I think I've made a lot over the years on this show, Um, but he said it just real cleanly, bonds can be risky too. So he writes, it's a terrible mistake for investors with long-term horizons, among them pension funds, college endowments, savings-minded individuals, to measure their investment risk by their portfolio's ratios of bonds to stocks. Often high-grade bonds in an investment portfolio increase its risk. And also, I noticed in a CNBC interview a couple of days ago, he was uh, Warren Buffett was uh, interviewed, and he mentioned again he believes long-term investors should buy stocks over bonds. He said, if you had to choose between buying long-term bonds or equities, I would choose equities in a minute, he told CNBC's Squawk Box on Monday in a wide-ranging interview. Uh, in his annual letter, he also blasted the belief that bonds were a lower-risk investment over the long term. He recommended investors stay in equities due to the negative impact from inflation on the purchasing power of fixed-income holdings. I want to quickly acknowledge that any upcoming day, week, or even year stocks will be riskier, far riskier than short-term U.S. bonds. So he's basically saying, look, stocks fluctuate a lot. We know it. But if you're really trying to accumulate purchasing power in an inflationary world, which we live in, it's very rare periods, Fred, but we've had deflation uh, for quite some time. It's always been a positive number of inflation. Uh, You know, he's just making the case that, look, bonds for a lifetime purpose, for a lifetime holding, measured in decades. Uh, the way I say it is bonds are an irrational investment for a two or three decade investment. Doesn't mean you don't own any of them, it just from a comparative purposes, they just have a horrible track record of providing any type of meaningful, meaningful return after taxes and inflation. And that's, that's really what I think, that's my interpretation of what he's saying is look, um, Tell me what your goal is. We have to deal with this every day, don't we, Dave? It's it's there are so many um, rules of thumb thrown out there, and people have these natural prejudices and bias when they walk into our office for the first time. And it's just amazing that you know the, the kind of the attitude people have. They fall for these rules of thumb, so we have to deal with it all the time because we have you know it really depends. I've always said, tell me whose money it is what's it for and when they need it and i can tell you pretty much what type of asset allocation and portfolio they should have but there's moving parts in a retirement we have short-term needs sometimes there's you know a, a need that's five years out and then sometimes it's just a lifetime need for an inflation that we're not going you know that's going to at least keep up with our costs and so it's it, these are these are hard issues to get around and i think that's why it makes um Investing such a struggle for people. Number one, it's the psychological dimension. I still put that as the number one, and almost everything else is commentary. Uh, but the second to that is yeah. just understanding uh, the Warren, deal. Warren Buffett though, doesn't have to worry about his uh, retirement if uh, the market goes down by fifty percent. He's yeah. still got a few billion to 
And speaking of that, he mentioned in the letter, uh, I don't have it in front of me, that he put a table out there, case and example. His Berkshire Hathaway stock had fallen by 50% or more four times since he's managed it. And he went, but his point he was making is that's why it is just not a sensible strategy to use leverage. No. Uh, because no matter, even if you have a small amount of leverage, your things can get carried away in your mind emotionally and you can really do a lot of harm to yourself. And I got a chuckle when his partner, Charlie Munger, said there's three ways to go broke. The three L's, liquors, ladies, and leverage. Uh, I, I suspect he made up the first two just to put a little humor in it. Um, so that's the, that was his thoughts on leverage. I occasionally get people who ask me, what, should I use margin on my account and buy more? Now, it's always near an all-time high. Uh, so that's how these things happen with us. Um, Ryan, you wrote a, a blog recently and really had to centered around the fact that life is full of major events and crossroads. Some of these can cause some pretty amazing changes in your financial goals. And along with the resources uh, that you have available to try to make those goals happen. Um, and it's, I would think that those are great times to sit down. We're all going to, I call them curveballs, as you guys know. Uh, I'll tell a prospective client, look, there's going to be a number of curveballs that are going to hit you. We can't even predict what they're going to be, but they're coming at you. That's a great time to sit down and really meet with your advisor. And if you think something's coming, kind of try to get in front of it if you can. And if you can't get in front of it, it seems to me the role of a really good uh, investment advisor is to say, huh, that's an interesting wrinkle. We got to figure out how to iron that wrinkle out. Um, can you work, can you talk to me kind of what you mentioned? You, you mentioned the first one is a real common one for a lot of younger folks. Uh, gets getting a new job suddenly or a, or a different job or a better job. That can, that can really change the dynamics uh, when we think of a retirement plan or even just running our day-to-day -day household financials. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And I think the uh, the impetus for this is really the thought that there's certain key turning points uh, throughout your life that could potentially have a real significant impact in your uh, retirement. And if you're able to acknowledge and recognize when these turning points might be, you can meet with your advisor and then your advisor can provide advice to make sure you can capitalize on some of these. So you really, uh, you know, I, I think people think of financial planning, they think, okay, I'll pay somebody 500 or 1,000 or 3,000, whatever, uh, to create a financial plan for me and then I'm gonna follow this financial plan on my own. A financial plan, the day you write it and agree to it, basically by the next day is somewhat outdated, isn't it? It is. Because things are gonna change. Things change, things pop up, and. You can account for many things in a plan, but you can't account for what's unexpected, and you just have to know that things will inevitably come up. Uh, but one of the things I, I was writing about in the blog that not necessarily everyone might think about when you need to meet with an advisor is maybe when you change jobs. Um, you might think, sure, maybe a, a change in a child or maybe a divorce sure. or some major life event, but a job doesn't seem to be potentially one of those, but it could be. And the reason for that is there's financial implications. Maybe you get a, a pay raise. Um, and with that pay raise, you have the possibility of having an increased lifestyle. And I know we've talked about in the past the possibility of spending creep and you, you make more money, so you right. spend more. It's tempting. It is. And, and I'm not saying you should, um, in a vacuum, all of a sudden, because you've earned more money, you should immediately put all that excess into investments. I think there's a, obviously a balance of rewarding yourself sure. for good work. But that is a, a real a good time for you to meet with an advisor to make sure that you can potentially maybe step up some of your contributions. And, and, and let's take it, someone takes a new job, maybe it's in a completely different type of company or industry. Maybe it's one that's more volatile. Maybe it's one that uh, is fraught with uh, more frequent layoffs. 
uh, that kind of circles back then to, oh, okay, well, you had a stable job at the University of Illinois. It looked like as long as you didn't, you know, burn the place down, you could probably stay there for life. Now you're working for this high-tech startup, and they come and go like they blow, like the wind. Mm-hmm. Maybe now we go from a, a three-month um, reserves, emergency reserves, to maybe nine months or a year because of the nature of the job. So those are the types. That's why you need to talk to your financial advisor. It may not just be about changing your investment strategy. It might even be about, oh, we need a bigger or smaller. Maybe it's an opportunity to have a smaller uh, emergency reserves and that money can get invested for a longer down the road purpose. Right. And th- there's just so many factors and that's the point of why an advisor could be so helpful is because they can think of things because it's not the first time that we or an advisor has heard this. So we can draw on past experience and provide some insight. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I've always worked with retired people and I think they think I'm clairvoyant, you know, because I can pretty much predict m- many things. Uh, prospective client who's contemplating retirement and I think they wonder gosh how does he know that I was thinking that there's a lot of common denominators mm-hmm. and I think that's the point when you finance and, and and financial planning retirement planning it's a really it's a way of thinking um, it's a way of structuring uh, moving parts and I think a good financial advisor when we got all these moving parts popping us in the head just when you think you have it figured out then it's like oh that's right I, I got this factor that's really the value one of the values of having a great financial advisor and then what about guys uh, those of us who get lucky we see it from time to time uh, they get a big inheritance or a financial windfall or just a lump sum money lump sum of money that suddenly comes upon them they they don't know what to do about um, that would certainly be a trigger wouldn't it I think so, because I I think without guidance, you won't necessarily know what to do with it. So you might, you know, there's obviously the the potential for people to go blow it, but there's also the people who might just leave it sitting in cash. Um, And I think just sitting down and and really thinking through like, okay, well, now I have opportunities I didn't have before because of this big lump sum of money. What am I going to do with this? And maybe it is a balance between, you know, I'm going to use some of it right away to, you know, maybe it's put a down payment on a house that you've always wanted or something. But then also a lot of times it comes down to, well, how much can I safely withdraw from this and make sure it actually lasts my lifetime or a certain am- amount of time? And, may, you know, it's basically like a retirement plan sure. type issue. Maybe you're not retiring, but you just want to supplement your income. And people left on their own, they might not take anything because they're worried about depleting right. it, or they might take more than what is sustainable and then end up depleting it at some point versus if you find that happy kind of medium level that sustainable withdrawal you can kind of have the best of both worlds supplement your income and hopefully still grow it over time you know if your withdrawal rate's reasonable all of these things seem to be circling back and it's kind of what if people listen to my commercials if they do uh one of the you know i always said if someone said but what do you guys really do we help people make the best life possible with the money they have so people have money and income streams and it always circles back to that good decisions and not arbitrary decisions because every decision we make whether we do something or don't do something they have consequences and and i think if we're going to maximize what we can do and have that best financial life possible with the money we have uh, really the best place to go is to a really highly qualified financial advisor it doesn't have to be us i'm not suggesting that for a minute we're, we're, as i said we're blessed with a, a lot of good people in this town but when it really comes down to it, the likelihood of somebody having their optimal life, that is going to heaven, having done everything they wanted to do on earth, is probably, well, I'm not going to say probably, I'm not going to hedge it. 
it's going to require a really good financial plan. And if you're going to have a financial plan, you're going to need a planner. Uh, enough on that. Here's one, Dave. You, um, you went through this a couple of years ago. Uh, getting married. Uh, that seems like one. That's a pretty big transition for people for lots of reasons, not just financial, for lots of reasons. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, just speaking specifically about the finances, the obvious one is, you know, how are we going to join our finances? And I think that looks different for everyone. I, I researched it a lot before I got married. You know, we ended up, we have one joint checking account and that's it. And then we've got like a savings account. But some people like to have separate accounts and, and you get different philosophies from different people. But the main thing is to come up with how are we going to handle our finances together so that we're both comfortable with it and not kind of micromanaging what the other person's spending um, at the same time not you know you just have to a lot of it really does come down to communication I think and coming up with what works for you well you know what they say you don't know what happiness is until you get married by then it's too late but anyway <laughs> I thought I'd share that I thought since we're on the married topic and I know that conversation when you're when you're either about to get married or just having gotten married can be a difficult conversation to have. I think that's one of the top two difficult conversations is finances for married couples. And sometimes having a third person who's not biased towards one, the spouse or the other spouse, they can try to play off each other and give them some advice without it seeming like it's it's biased. And it can be uh, embarrassing too, right? Uh, maybe you haven't quite mentioned until you got the ring on your finger that uh, I got the 60000 in student loans I forgot to tell you about. And so it can be embarrassing too, but I think that conversation uh, it has to be open and transparent. If it can't be on the front end of those issues, you're probably going to have other issues maybe down the line. Mm -hmm. Something else that I, I've thought a lot about lately is just you kind of all, you also have to get on the same page in terms of like what are my spending goals and priorities and just financial goals and priorities and I think you you have to kind of balance the two so an example is I just naturally am a very frugal person probably to a fault somebody would say cheap yeah and <laughs> sometimes you know if that happens and then the other spouse won't be and it's not fair for one person to necessarily drive all of the financial decision making and I'm trying to basically be a little more <laughs> balanced and, and also include my wife and, in, you know, how are we going to spend our money? What's really important to both of us? Can it we, shouldn't just be me deciding what we, we see that a lot on. though, guys. Um, there's one dominant person in a relationship and it's not always the guy. It's just as likely to be the female in the relationship or the other partner. Um, but one is typically dominant and, and we see this interaction all the time. One kind of has this wish list that makes them smile and it's the only thing that makes them smile is when they mention the helping the kids out with their uh, education or the cottage on the beach fill in the blank and the other person instantly flinches and says well, well we can't do that or a new car we can't do that and I think the value of planning is you know we do this all the time no why do you say that well you know tell me more about that why do you why do you feel that way is there anything else and then we'll go in and we'll just put it in the plan and say, well, maybe it is. Let's let's go test that plan. Let's let's throw that new car or spending an additional five hundred a month. You know, that really makes the big difference. Uh, we get to be the sponsor of fun once a year for the family's vacation. And instead of dismissing it so many times, we can show them that there is this compromise that we can draw a truce between those between those two personalities. That can be a huge benefit for couples pre-retirement or in retirement. Um, because without a great financial plan in the background, you really are operating in the dark. You really don't know. And so the conservative person becomes more conservative and the spender gets frustrated. And it's just drawing a truce between those two people. And 
And the great thing about having a, a financial software is you can model this mathematically and you can say, no, look, not only do you have the ability to do what you hope to do, you financially can do this maybe even more, and here's the proof. Right. And so it, it allows the person who is more conservative to be put at ease. Yeah, right. And, and, the, and the other spouse who wants to do certain things to maybe get their true retirement that they want as well. So can okay. be relationship advice. So another one, is Ryan, and you can relate to this, uh, that you have a two-year-old tomorrow, right? No, Thursday. Thursday. Uh, children can change a lot of a lot of dynamics instantly mm -hmm. i mean all of a sudden your brain you're up between one and three starting to do calculations about okay 18 years from now i may have to come up with you know 50 or 60 thousand a year or whatever that number is uh tell me about that and what what did you write in your blog about that so i just try to take a, a holistic approach of some of the things that i thought about and anyone should think about when they have a child whatever stage in life that may be is making sure you're covering your child or children and covering your wife on family in the event that you potentially pass away early. And so health insurance immediately is the first care you need to take care of. Your new child will, will need their own insurance. Um, and then life insurance right. moving forward is really the big thing, especially if you're the sole provider in the family. So making sure that your life insurance covers not only uh, the cost for your child to support goals, potentially college, doesn't have to be, or cover short-term uh, debts like a, a house, maybe a 30-year mortgage, um, but make sure that those big chunks are covered for if you were to pass away. And at Rudy Wealth Management, you guys, as you know, we specialize pretty much entirely in retirement planning and all things retirement with really the language we speak. Um, <coughs> when we're getting close to retirement, would seem to be another natural trigger to meet with your advisor. Uh, do you do that? Are we talking weeks before, months, years? What's your take on that? Uh, certainly several years out would be the ideal uh, time frame because then if you're looking a couple years out, you can make some tweaks maybe beforehand. And I know we talk about the first potentially five years before and the five years after your retirement date are so key to the potential success of your retirement um, because you don't know what returns you may get in the sequence of those returns. So it's important to make sure we're mindful and we're monitoring your, your finances or your investments during those times. Otherwise what's happening isn't it, is we're second guessing constantly. Uh, we do something and we second guess whether we should have done that or we didn't do something and we're, sec we're second guessing that. Can't a good financial planner, isn't one of the, maybe the gifts that a great financial planner and financial advisor gives people is the ability to worry a lot less because, hey, I got that covered. We've already thought through that issue. Um, you're fine. And, I, and I'm really kind of heading probably towards my last point is just a few weeks ago we were seeing these thousand point declines, you know, a couple of days back to back, you know, you go down 10% in a matter of just a few days from all time highs seem to be another trigger. Uh, our clients at this point, um, we didn't have any phone calls because they pretty much know what we're going to say, but that certainly is a good value and a good comforting factor an advantage of having a financial advisor, isn't it? Certainly. And it just, having an advisor gives you the ability to take the burden off of your shoulders and to rely on a specialist or an expert. So. Yeah. So obviously we're in that business. And so it probably sounds to people listening to this, like, well, of course they think, you know, it's like I said, don't ever ask a barber for, you know, if you need a haircut, you know, I actually warned Buffett. I have to quote him on that one. And, uh, and, and so that is our nature, but I think we have this natural nature, you know, I can't prove it. Um, but as a family run company, I think to a person, 
I feel comfortable saying that we have a natural, caring uh, attitude towards people and almost feel like, uh, maybe obsessed on my part at some times, that we have to protect everybody, you know, from, from themselves or from other advisors or just from just bad advice. Um, I don't know if you guys agree with that or no or not. Well, and I think whether, you know, these are times you meet with an advisor or not, I think it's times that are really important to take a step back and, and come up with some sort of plan for how you're going to handle the changes that are going on in your life and what are the implications of this change financially for the rest of my life and make sure that you're handling them appropriately. And if you choose to do that on your own, just make sure you educate yourself so you can do it properly. Yeah, but you can't educate your emotional side. I mean, you, you, that's that's the part that gets that's really gets part. in the way. And I don't, I don't. There's not a pill for that at this point that I'm aware of. Um, guys, in the last few minutes, I do want to mention we'll be holding another seminar on retirement planning. Again, we speak all things retirement. Um, we're going to cover the topic of retirement planning and retirement readiness. It's Wednesday, March 14th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at our Rudy Wealth Learning Center on 2502 Galen Drive. In this event, Rudy Wealth Management Team will walk you through the challenges facing those planning for retirement, the different decisions you have to make, and how to approach them. We'll cover the reasonable expectations for things like withdrawal rates, and people, that's a big one. I think that discussion alone is going to be worth your evening, that short part of your evening, is if just to get a better concept we continue to do a deeper and deeper dive into this. How much can I spend for my investments at various allocation schemes? Um, that ultimately help you decide if you're retirement ready. You can sign up online by going to our seminars page on our website at rudywealth.com or by giving us a call at 356-1400. Again, that's March 14th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at our Rudy Wealth Learning Center on Galen Drive in Champaign. And you could call us at 356-1400 or go to rudywealth.com. Dot com. Well, Fred, there was a lot of goodies in that Berkshire letter. Uh, you've probably, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know when he began actually, but and I don't know if you right. have tended to follow his performance or his story much. Uh, what's your take on it, just kind of overall? Well, I certainly have uh, in the <clears throat> last 10 years or so. I'm not sure I uh, go back very far, but uh, again, uh, his advice is uh, in a sense kind of, uh, of, uh, pompous saying that I can do it, but you can't, which is in some ways, true. I think that I think I, that there seems I, to be I, that. Can, I could be an active investor, but you're probably going to fail if you're an active investor, which is probably correct. <laughs> I, I, I kind of when I read between the lines, I think he's basically sending a message that guys don't count on me anymore yeah. for market yeah, beating returns. And in fact, to the extent he has, it's over the last 10 or 15 years, it's certainly diminished right. to, to a large right. extent. I, w I wanted to say one thing too, that sure. I should have said earlier that I, I probably have said this 20 times over the years, but uh, <clears throat> you, you could say, well, uh, I can handle a correction. Uh, I just went through one, right. uh, no sweat, but right. most corrections are not uh, two weeks. They're uh, Correct. Uh, months, years, uh, maybe occasionally a decade. Right. So, so uh, this is not necessarily the, uh, the, the worst that could happen. Oh, no, 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 no. By any, this is, uh, this is, like I said, a crosstown bus, uh, yeah. you know, a 10% decline, even though it was certainly compacted in its, you know, time frame. Uh, that's almost a yawner. You shouldn't even notice it, or sh it shouldn't even be talked about. Right. Uh, let alone market, that, markets and turmoil specials on CNBC, which pretty much mark the bottom once right. again. So that you know that's interesting. I think I'll I'll leave people with this best his best thought. I thought I've never believed in risking what my family and friends have had have and need in order to pursue what they don't have and don't need. In other words when you've won the game, stop playing. Well, this is Paul Rudy. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money. Thank you, Dr. Fred Gertz, David Rudy, and Ryan Repko. Thanks for listening.
Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.